Good morning. I'm Carol Barnett. I'll be reading Colossians 1, 17 through 20. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now and see in it the Lord Jesus, may you open our eyes to see him as he really is. And may our heart's response not be indifference, but may it be a love that grows, abounds greater and greater. May our appreciation, may our joy in Jesus grow and abound more and more. May we see him this morning, and what we see, may we love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How would you feel about someone who got first place in everything? Maybe you were at school with that person. Maybe you played sports with this person. Whatever the event was, he won. Whatever the subject, she always took first place. Regardless of whether it was the 100-meter dash or the steeplechase, regardless of whether it was calculus or PE, top marks always went to this person. If he was on the team, he was the star player. If she was on the squad, she carried everyone else on her shoulders. Did you know someone like that? Did you happen to have a... Keith Pugh in your school? I, I think my father only lost five games his entire athletic career. Uh, at least that's my memory of it as his son. Uh, regardless of whether you did or not, imagine how you would feel about that person. How would you feel about someone who always took first place in everything? Well, you probably mostly feel one of two ways. Either you hated that person with the kind of hatred that you would inwardly cheer and do somersaults if that person ever stumbled or messed up. Either you hated that person who always finished first or you loved that person. More than anything else, you wanted to be their friend. You wanted to be connected to a real champion. There are two polar opposite reactions to people who always come first. You either love them or you hate them. You're either for them or you're against them. You either want to be as close as you possibly can be to them or as far away as you can be from them. These two extremes hold true 
when we come to Jesus. You love him or you hate him. You're for him or you're against him. You want to be close to him or you want nothing to do with him. The only ones who can be ambivalent toward Jesus are those who don't really know him. You don't love or hate the first place winner that you don't know anything about, right? You don't love or hate Wimbledon tennis champion Norvak Djokovic because you've never heard of him. You probably didn't know he was the four-time defending champ. You probably don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name right. I don't know. I don't know anything else about him. But if I followed tennis, I probably would love him or hate him. Just like the first-place athlete you never heard of, most people with no feelings toward Jesus are those who don't know anything about him. They either don't know or they don't believe what Carol just read to us. They don't believe Colossians chapter 1 is true about Jesus. They don't believe Jesus is all these things. They don't believe that he has come to have first place in everything. They don't accept it. But guess what? Me not wanting to accept the Wimbledon champion, doesn't change who won. Me not wanting to accept the results of last night's football game doesn't change who won. A person not wanting to accept Jesus' supremacy over all things doesn't change whether it's true. Verse 18 says that all these things are true of Jesus so that he might come to have First place in all things. My disliking that fact doesn't change the reality. Any more than disliking the outcome of last night's game changes who won. My hostility toward Jesus doesn't alter his supremacy over all things any more than my hostility toward Michael Phelps alters his supremacy in the Olympic swimming pool. My feelings cannot change the reality. That man has 23 gold medals. My love or hate, my approval or my disdain won't change things. Jesus takes first place independent of my feelings, independent of our feelings. But we do have feelings about it. You should have feelings about Jesus, be they hot Or be they cold? Jesus said it's better that our feelings be hot or cold. Lukewarm feelings are for what? Spitting. Spitting. Lukewarm feelings are for spitting. Fence sitting is for who? It's for Humpty Dumpties, right? You don't want to be that. Either you're going to love this first place winner or you're going to reject him either with sadness, like the rich young ruler, or with anger, like the scribes and Pharisees. Lukewarmness comes from not really knowing, not really engaging with all that we're about to see here in Colossians chapter 1, all these incredible claims about Jesus. So, this morning, I'd rather you walk away happy 
or hot under the collar. Because that means you have really engaged with what Colossians is saying. Whether you walk away happy or hotter in the collar, anything but lukewarm. I don't want anyone walking away from here indifferent to Jesus. You shouldn't be able to remain indifferent when you force yourself to look at the incredible claims made here. To do so would be like going to a track and field event and observing a single guy breaking world records in every event he enters, one after another, and being indifferent about it. If you witness someone winning every single event, breaking every single record, wouldn't you start to get excited? You're seeing it? You're there? You're witnessing it? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you cheer? Of course you would. You'd love it. Or you'd hate it if you were there to support the other team. As we journey through four more verses of Colossians this morning, we're going to move through six headings. Think of these like six events in a decathlon that we are all observing together. It's like we're watching Jesus, and he steps up to the pole vault. With a wink, he calls to Tim Thomas, give me your worst pole. (laughs) And before anyone can object, Jesus already flies through the air, clearing the top bar with ease. And then, without needing to catch his breath, he walks right over picks up a discus with one hand, sends it off, sailing, adding another satellite into space. We're just watching one amazing thing after another in rapid fire, watching Jesus break all the records, take first place in everything. Either we are getting really excited or we are getting really mad. (laughs) Either we're getting ready to rush the field, lifting this champion onto our shoulders Or we're getting ready to walk off the field sad and embittered because our spotlight was stolen. Our performance could never compare to his. If this is the standard of greatness, we realize we all hopelessly fall short. We see just how far we fall short when our little javelin lies there and his is still sailing on through the stratosphere. We're all watching the same events, but our heart's responses can be very different. So, I mean, just like last night. So, we're, we're all watching the same events, but based on whose team we are, we are excited, happy, or we are depressed and sad. So, what are these events where Jesus has, takes first place? Let's look at them one at a time. The first event is in the first part of verse 17. Look at verse 17. It says that he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The first event in verse 17 is existence. And guess what? Jesus wins first place in existence. Jesus is before all things in that he existed before all things. In the game of existence, no one beats Jesus. None can top the Son of God. Remember last week, we asked a question that every cult gets wrong and that every Christian must get right. The question is this, was there a time when he was not? 
was there a time when Jesus did not exist? Essentially, the question is asking this. Is Jesus a created being? Is Jesus a created being who had a beginning just like us? Going back in time, would you eventually reach a point where the Son of God did not exist? Again, the answer here in verse 17 is no. Jesus is before. He is always before. Go back to any point in time and ask the question, is, he, is this a time when he was not? And verse 17, the answer is always the same. No. He is before this too. He is before all things. His existence is always previous. Jesus is the eternally generated Son of God. As long as God's radiance has been shining, which is always, Jesus has been there. As long as God has had a perfect idea of himself, which is always, Jesus has been there. He is the preexistent Son of God. There never was a time when he was not. So, in the game of existence, Jesus has us all licked. Stack all of our existence on top of one another together on one side, Jesus still has us beat. While it's true that our soul's existence once begun will never end, we still had a beginning. God did create us and bring us into existence at a point in time. But Jesus, the perfect image and reflection of God, never had a moment of non-existence. In geometry, which Jesus is also better at than you are, than the rest of us, I mean, he pretty much created it. In geometry terms, our existence is like a ray. A ray is a line. Oh, there it is. A ray is a line with a single starting point and extends infinitely in one direction. We are a ray. Jesus, on the other hand, is a true line. He is the true line extending out infinitely in both directions. His existence extends infinitely into the past and into the future. If you are struggling to remember your geometry, this image should jog your mind, right? You all remember this. I stole this directly off the internet right here. You all remember this. A lot of people view their existence like a line segment. You see segment AB, it begins at point A, ends at point B. Your existence begins at point A with your birth. Your existence ends at point B with your death. Many people have a simple line segment view of their existence. But the Christian believes there is more. God has revealed our existence isn't a line segment. It's a ray. God creates us. We are born, point A. And if Jesus tarries, we will die, point B. But our existence goes past, point B. The human soul, once made, is eternal. Jesus talked about both everlasting life for the soul and also everlasting condemnation. Since our existence is like a ray, if you were to zoom out, you know, you take your fingers like on a phone, start zooming out. If you were to zoom out, that little lifespan 
from point A to point B will continue to look smaller and smaller, will continue to decrease until it looks next to nothing. Zoom out far enough and it will appear like what Scripture calls it. This life is a vapor's breath. It is a hair's width of our whole existence because our line goes out infinitely into the future. But even with all the existence that lies before us, Jesus still has us beaten, hands down. He is the true line whose existence goes out infinitely in both directions. He is the true line whose existence goes out both directions. He is the one who was, who is, and who evermore shall be. Jesus wins the event of existence. Nothing in all creation can compete individually or even all stacked together against him. Wow, you say, there really is no contest. What's the next event? <laughs> Look with me at verse, the rest of verse 17. Uh, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Here we see that Jesus wins first place in aseity. Aseity. What is aseity, you ask? I'm sure that's a word most of you use every day. Probably not. You don't use the word aseity because nothing you encounter in your daily life possesses it. Not a thing. Aseity is the quality of self-originating, underived being. It is complete independence. Or to put it another way, a complete lack of dependence on something else, on anything else for existence. So, do you possess aseity? No. You are a dependent being. Your existence is derived from other things. Does anything in your daily life possess aseity? No. Everything depends on something outside of it for existence. The atoms in the pancakes that our college students ate this morning depend upon forces to hold them together. Forces that scientists don't really understand. We don't really understand why atoms hold together, why electrons, protons do what they do. We don't under, really understand why gravity itself is a thing. Scientists can observe and measure these things, but are unable to answer many of the why questions. Why do all things hold together? Why does matter exist at all? It's a question that science isn't equipped to answer, but God can. He says, the answer is Jesus. The Son of God holds all things together. Verse 17 says, nothing holds Christ together. He possesses underived existence. Nothing holds the Son of God together, rather the Son of God holds together all things. Jesus wins another event, hands down, because his hands hold all things together. Here's a third event where Jesus wins first place. Jesus wins first place in the church. In the church. Look at verse 18. He's before all things, in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body the church. He's the head of the church. Now here, 
there really can be no dispute. The church is Jesus' idea, not our idea. It's not why we're here. It's our idea. It's Jesus' idea. The gathering together of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are called by his name, who are living for God's glory, is Jesus' unique and patented idea. It's his design. He designed the church as a person might design an invention. Jesus founded the church as a man might found an organization or a company. Other hands might misuse an invention, and other men might mismanage a company, but the designer has a right over it that can't be ignored. The founder has a position in the company's history that cannot be rewritten. Jesus is head of the church no matter what the ambitions of others may be. Jesus is Lord over the church, no matter what ill intent others might have toward her or with, even within her. Jesus wins first place. He wins first, the place of first importance in the church. Just like the head holds the place of first importance among the members of our body. I can smash a thumb, and I have. I can break an ankle on a slip and slide. And I have. And I'll be okay. I am okay. But I really, really, really don't want a head injury. Because the head commands and directs everything else. Right? Jesus is the head of the body, the church. We, as the church body, can get a little smashed, can get a little broken at times. But praise God... The church will never have a head injury. Well, I guess we already did, but he recovered. (laughs) Jesus, our holy head, has already surmounted all his suffering. He's already won. This is the way Charles Simeon put it in a letter to a friend, famous pastor. Simeon said, dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When When I'm getting through a hedge... If my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking on my legs. Let us rejoice in remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all of his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. The global church may suffer some pricking and may be weak in many ways. But she will never again suffer a head injury. The church will never have a fatal blow. Fatal blow to the head. Because our holy head has already passed through all of his suffering. He's already won. Jesus has won forever first place in the church. It is his church after all. Here's a fourth event where Jesus takes first place. Jesus wins first place In the resurrection. In the resurrection. Look at the rest of verse 18. He's also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. In what sense has Jesus won first place in the resurrection? Others were resurrected before him. Not many, but others were. Remember the Old Testament? Both Elijah and Elisha, 
both raised someone from the dead. In the New Testament, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter back from the dead. Jesus resurrects the widow of Nain's son as he's on his way to be buried. Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. How then is Jesus the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, if other people have been raised from the dead before? I think you already know the answer, right? All these others were raised only to die again. Their souls were restored to their bodies, yes, but their bodies were still frail like ours, still perishable. But the resurrection of Jesus is something entirely different. It was a resurrection of a different kind altogether. Jesus' body was raised never to die again. To quote the Apostle Paul, the perishable body took on the imperishable. The mortal clothed itself with immortality. Jesus is the beginning of the resurrection that fundamentally transforms the body itself. There's continuity with the old body, the body we have now. There's continuity. Jesus still had the nail-pierced hands, the hole in his side. Others would still recognize him as Jesus, but usually not until he wanted them to. There's an element of discontinuity with the old body as well. Remember, Jesus' resurrected body, he's now appearing wherever he wants to be without the need to use the door. He can eat, but I rather doubt he needs to. He ascends like his body isn't bound by the same physics ours is bound by. Jesus' resurrection is unique. It's a first. It's a new beginning. With his resurrection, Jesus becomes the beginning of a new humanity, a humanity raised from the dead and clothed with immortality. This is us as we were always meant to be, free from frailty, free from pain, free from sickness, free from the decay of time, free from cancer, free from dementia, free from disability, free from futility, free from the curse, free from sin. Jesus is called the first fruit of this kind of resurrection. This resurrection finally matures and makes us who we were always supposed to be. And if you remember the geometry refresher I gave you earlier, our life from birth to death, from point A to point B, becomes very, very small when we start zooming out in order to see the rest of the line stretching out into eternity. The resurrected body that Jesus bought for us is the body in which we will spend most all of our existence. All except for a vapor's breath of time. Most all of your line, your ray, Christian, you will experience it in a resurrected body, free of all corruption, capable of far more joy than you can presently imagine possible. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And we will very soon follow after him in the likeness of his resurrection. At this point, 
I know someone here is wanting to ask me about Paul's use of the term firstborn. We talked about it last week, and we said it's, it's not a chronological reference last week. But here, in verse 15, it's not a chronological reference. But here, in verse 18, it seems to be. It feels like it is. If you want to know how to put those two things together, you're going to have to come back on Wednesday. This is a very, very good Wednesday feast day question. So I'm not going to tackle it here. You'll just have to come eat sloppy joes with us this Wednesday night and figure this one out because I'm moving on. Look at the next event. Uh, Fifth event, fifth point here. Jesus wins first place in the fullness of God. In the fullness of God. Verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. You look at verse 19 and say, okay, Jesus wins when it comes to fullness. But fullness of what? How do we know what kind of fullness Paul is talking about in verse 19? I think we can be pretty sure if we just let our eyes run down the page a little bit to chapter 2, verse 9. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. Talking about Jesus, it says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of deity. What is deity? Or if you're English, you say deity. Deity, deity. What is deity? Deity is another word for God, right? Deity is godness. All the fullness of who God is resides bodily in Jesus. That's what Colossians is saying. In Jesus, all the essential properties of God have seamlessly come together with all the essential properties of man. So that Jesus possesses all the fullness of deity and all that is essential to humanity. Sin is not essential to humanity, though, is it? It's common, universally common right now. It's common, but humanity was originally created without sin, without a fallen sinful nature. Sin has come in as an alien invading force, exercising an unrightful dominion in humanity. So when we encounter Jesus, we're really encountering someone who may be, who, who, who is more fully human than we are. He's man as man was meant to be. Jesus presents us with a new humanity. Humanity as we were intended to be, without sin, without curse, without corruption. A humanity that is also indwelt by the divine. Jesus has the fullness, but he also offers to us a share in his spirit. He has the fullness, but we too can be filled by God's spirit. In the spirit of Christ, we now have a helper, Jesus says, who is always with us. Not just for our brief moment between point A and point B, but forever. Forever. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit isn't an indwelling that will ever be revoked from you, believer. From the moment we are born again by the Spirit, 
we will always have God in us. Always. And who knows what eternity holds when God promises to dwell both with us and in us forever. If you're wondering, what makes this all possible? Our sixth and final point makes that clear. Look with me at the final verse, the final event, verse 20. Verse 20 says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. In verse 20 we see that Jesus wins first place in reconciling all things. First place in reconciling all things. What makes all things, all these things, all these incredible things possible? What makes it possible that our bodies will follow after Jesus in the same kind of glorious resurrection? What makes it possible that our bodies will be temples where the Holy Spirit dwells? Not just now, but always. Those great blessings are only made ours by this, verse 20, a Jesus who wins. A Jesus who wins first place in the race of reconciling all things to God. He is the only one to cross the finish line in this event, in this race. Though many have tried, all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us could repair the breach or pave over our many offenses. Jesus took on our offenses As he ran this race, he took it on his own back upon the cross. Verse 20 says that he made peace between us and God through the blood of his cross. Jesus has satisfied divine justice for our cosmic crimes. And he has purchased all these blessings for us through his shed blood. Jesus as our head, as our captain, as the fullness of deity in bodily form, has won these blessings for us, each and every one. His death purchased our eternal life. His resurrection purchases our resurrection. From his fullness, he grants us to be filled with his spirit. All these blessings are ours through believing the good news of reconciliation, the gospel of reconciliation, that on the cross, the Son of God was reconciling the world back to the Father that had rebelled against him. Jesus tasted death for us, and he bore the punishment of God's just wrath for us. He transformed death itself for us, so that now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And a future resurrection is yet to come. All these things come to us through the one who has taken first place in all things. For those sitting in the stands watching Jesus compete in one event after another, taking first place in them all, there are two crowds starting to form. Two crowds looking on. Two crowds if We exclude all those people who are just looking at their phones. 
too distracted to see what's happening right in front of them. That's where the bored people are, the, the lukewarm people are. They can't be bothered to give Jesus a real look. Even though he's breaking world record events, fulfilling all righteousness right in front of them, if we exclude that crowd, then we're just left with two. There are two crowds for us to be a part of. Either we're in the crowd rejoicing in all of Jesus' first place performances, or we're in the crowd who hates it, who is sulking at our falling short, who is sad because we support the other team. I hope that if you came in this morning as a part of the sad and sulking crowd, or even the indifferent crowd, that you might leave today excited, rejoicing in Jesus' performance for you, wanting to be as close to him as you can be. Your heart can either say, that's the winner I want to be close to. That's the captain whose team I most want to be on. Your heart can say that, or you can say to yourself, that's all just too good. It's too good to be true. There's no way someone can be all those things, and I probably wouldn't like him if he were. You know from experience that you wouldn't like it if the person who always took first place in everything was a person who was full of pride. If that person acted like they were high above you. You know that from experience. But if you don't know it, I'll tell you. Jesus is not that person. Jesus is not that kind of first place winner. He's not like you. He is the truly humble champion. This champion comes down. He condescends to the worst and least of us. He picks the ones for his team that no one else wanted. Look around. It's us. He picks the ones no one else would pick. He doesn't come to us so that we might lift him on our shoulders. He comes to us that he might lift us up on his. The Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is the captain your soul has been longing for. Join his team and enjoy his victory as you embrace heaven's champion to your heart this morning. Father, as we have heard your word about Christ, may our heart's response be the right, appropriate, good one, joyful and true. May we not turn away sad. May we not turn away unbelieving. May we not be distracted and indifferent. May our hearts see Jesus. And in this moment, may we all say the yes and amen. We must have him as our captain. We must have him as our king. This one has won the victory for us. May we rejoice in all that he is, all that he has done, all that he has achieved. We are heaven bound because he is carrying us on his shoulders. May we rejoice in this Christ, in this Savior, in this one 
who must have first place in all things. May that be our heart's response now as, as we sing, as, as we pray, as we go from here. May we go rejoicing in this Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.